Hello and welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, a podcast dedicated to all things related to data security and data privacy, brought to you by Data Protection for Business, and this is DPO. Your host today is me, Karen Heaton, owner of Data Protection for Business, still recording from my home office in Southwest London. This episode is part of our series of podcasts addressing security and privacy concerns resulting from the coronavirus pandemic and the shift in working practices for millions of businesses across the UK and the world. In today's episode, we're delving into the issues we discussed in our previous episode, number 24, on the NHS Track and Trace app, and we're going to consider in more detail the legal privacy and practicality barriers that we talked about. We're also going to discuss what this means in practice for these apps as future solutions when we need to help governments manage pandemics. So on our show today, I'm delighted to welcome Mark Sherwood Edwards and Roger Marlowe, both experts in their respective fields. Mark is a fellow GDPR Now host, leading lawyer in technology and fintech, and founder of Clearview Legal. Mark has kindly agreed to join us today in our search for app enlightenment. Mark, welcome. Good, good to be here. Thank you for joining us. Also on our show today, we welcome Roger Marlowe. Roger is a software professional with extensive experience in software projects, including banking, defense, automotive, as well as 10 years in the NHS. As Roger has his own software company, which provides IT services into the NHS, he's also in a unique position to give us a benefit of his government-based experience. And you can often find Roger, who writes regularly for Toby Young's Lockdown Skeptics website. So welcome, Roger. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Karen. Good to be on the show. You're welcome. So quick summary then. In our last episode, that was episode 24, we talked about the NHS Track and Trace app. We did a quick summary of how did we get here, what the difference was between the Apple and Google solution and the original um, NHS X solution that was built. Uh, we talked about some of the practical challenges of any app, regardless of, it, of who's built it. Um, problems from uh, battery life, uh, being able to see through walls, transmitting signals in train carriages, the, the size of the data sets, etc. And then we really delved into some of the uh, privacy issues around, well, who do you trust more with your data? Is it the government or is it Google or Apple? And you know, what about the data we're collecting? How is it going to be used and how is it going to be enforced? So, so what we're going to do today, we're going to start with some of the legal perspectives that we just touched on in the previous episode. Um, and what we discussed previously was, you know, richer data sets, for example, could they provide better or more valuable medical information, which could help not only save lives, but direct government policy. So let's kick off then um, the whole issue of the legal perspective of collecting citizens' data and the legal hurdles to climb, especially if the data that's being collected being collected isn't doesn't appear to be providing a lot of information. Is it efficient? Are we doing the right thing in collecting this information if it's not efficient or if it's not producing meaningful results based on what it was originally um, intended for? So 
Mark, would you be able to kick us off from the legal perspective? Yeah, so uh, yeah, happy to do that. So in the, the previous episode, there was a comment uh, along the lines that, uh, and I think it came from one of the parliamentary subcommittees, that if the app wasn't effective, um, then then it would possibly be in breach of human rights and shouldn't shouldn't be deployed. Now, there's nothing explicit along those lines in the GDPR. There's nothing that says which says uh, you can only collect personal data if you are achieving your purpose. So, for example, if I start up a, a takeaway food business and I'm bad at delivering the food is dire, um, I can still carry on with, uh, from GDPR point of view, collecting data. Um, I think that um, where the only real way you could introduce um, the is it efficient as a kind of legal point is if it turned out that it was particularly a the kind of collection of the data was particularly intrusive and b it was very clear it was having no effect then possibly you could build an argument around fairness because one of the principles of gdpr and has been a principle of data protection uh, you know about 20 30 years collection and use has to be fair um and transparent for that matter but I think it's quite hard to run the argument now uh, on the basis that, well, you know, no one quite knows what works yet. It's been tried and tested. This is version 1.0. Maybe by the time we get to version 2.0, it'll be working much better. So, yeah, Roger, I think you had mentioned that this had been brought up in Parliament, this particular issue and this statement that had been made to the, to the subcommittees. That's right. Um, so Harriet Harman's... Uh, Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights uh, had had uh, had said just that. So they 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 put it to uh, to Matt Hancock that uh, they'd said that unless the efficacy and benefits were clear, then the level of data being collected will not be justifiable. And I mean, the, there's a few things behind that. One was that back then that the amount of data that NHSX were contemplating collecting was quite different to what actually turned out uh, to be collected in the end. So they, they were going to be quite ambitious. They uh, all sorts of location data, uh, possibly more demographic data, more health data. So uh, they were talking about it as a, a more complete picture of, of the end user. And in fact, what, uh, what transpired was a really stripped down data model, there's very little data actually uh, moving around or stored stored on the phone, uh, I, either in the design that was contemplated by NHSX uh, or by the Apple Google model, which they eventually moved to. In fact, I think it the data really just reduces down to a Bluetooth receive signal strength indicator, a time of day and a random string of bits to identify uh, some security certificate. That's about it. So there's, there's almost nothing in the data that's being passed around. And so in some ways, the discussion that was going on between the kind of NHS management and, and the parliamentarians was a bit disconnected from, from technologically what was actually going on on the ground. So the, the stripping down of the data set uh, that's occurred um, do we think this was as a result of some of the privacy concerns raised, perhaps um, once additional work was done on things like the data protection impact assessment and some of the other governance structures that were going to be put in place for the app? Um, do you have any views, Mark, first of all, on whether perhaps that's why the data set became so, so small? 
Well, I, I think so. I mean, I think there is a uh, large concern about the amount of data being collected, whether it be centralised or decentralised. And certainly the, there's guidance produced by both the European Commission and by the European Data Protection Board, and also by, I haven't checked the ISO specifically, but both the EU Commission and Data Protection Board. So there shouldn't be location data there. There should just be proximity data there. And you know, that's a reduction of data. And it may have, you know, who knows whether that proximity, uh, that location data would have been useful. Uh, I, I don't know. You just don't, you just kind of don't, you don't know what you don't know. So, and it may, and it may be that people could have spotted, you know, um, kind of uh, hotspots of infection more easily by, mm. by location. That might have prompted some more questions, which might have led to more of this and that. I mean, if you think of the way that, um, not that I'm an expert on AI clearly at all, but it's all about how big your data set is and then you know, let the AI do its stuff. Now that's an ultra simplistic way of looking at things, but unless you've got, the, more, the less rich the data set, the clearly the fewer insights you're going to get. Yeah. So, yeah, and so, I, so, sorry, on you go, Roger, yeah. Sorry, Karen, I was, I was just going to say, there are, this is one of the things you see in the debate. So there's population level data where you could apply machine learning, AI, you know, and, and mining all sorts of interesting things from population level data. And and I think you're on safer grounds from a privacy point of view there because uh, you're not identifying individuals. The the issue back in uh, March when, when the design of these apps were being discussed was that they weren't really talking about population data. They were talking about trying to detect transmission from one individual to another. And so uh, things like location was questionable because it can can you tell the location of your phone down to down to six feet which was the, uh, the the distance which was being talked about then so you know are you within six feet of another person uh for 15 minutes uh and uh, can your phone determine its location to that level of accuracy and you know then that's in, you know, i mean that's quite a complicated technical problem uh and that's why they you know we ended up going with this proximity uh proxy as you might call it of signal strength but you know other apps around the world have tried to use gps location uh not necessarily successfully and and it's really down to your kind of mental model of how you think the the virus transmits itself uh you know and so you say well it's it's, it's when one person is close to another for a period of time ah well okay let's let's just determine their location and when they're close to each other for a period of time that's it a transmission a transmission event has probably occurred hasn't it so that's uh, and and but obviously when you talk about individuals, then you're into the then you're into the realm of privacy. So uh, I think it, it depends what the app is trying to achieve. If it's trying to do population level stuff, that's one thing. But if it's about individuals and their health data, then then obviously that's a more more, more into, kind of has more privacy issues. So within the EU and countries subject to GDPR, um, would you say that? any or many countries have used location data successfully uh, in their app or even used it at all? So uh, almost all European countries have uh, gone down and gone for the same approach. They've ended up using the Google and Apple technology. That's, uh, as it turns out, that's that's not because of, uh, of location or data concerns, although the, the public narrative has always been about location data being stored centrally or in a distributed manner although in fact in, in none of the apps uh, was 
in very few of the apps, actual location data was ever contemplated. Uh, it turned out to be a more practical reason that uh, when the phone's in your pocket, uh, the, the app goes into background mode and then it's not allowed to access the, uh, the Bluetooth hardware. And so uh, this is one of the problems that places like Singapore and Australia ran into early on that uh, they, it, it worked fine when it was in the lab constantly being prodded by, by the technicians who are testing it. But yeah. when the general public had hold of it and they just put their phone in their pocket, then the app became ineffective as soon as the, the screensaver came on. And the answer to that was uh, Google and, and Apple uh, to change their operating system to allow uh, these apps access to Bluetooth uh, hardware in the background. Uh, and then you could have a kind of always on um, always on uh, uh, app. So that's yeah. really what drove uh, the kind of pragmatic matters, really what drove the adoption of the Apple, Apple Google technology. Uh, has it been successful? Well, uh, uh, you know, we can we, we can get a, into that a bit more, but I think within within Europe, they've all had roughly the same kind of story. Um, maybe one exception, yeah, one exception being Iceland, I would say, whether you consider Iceland to be part of Europe. Uh, so Iceland, uh, they do use GPS uh, location tracking data in, in their app. Yeah, but they're, of course, a very large country with very few people living in it. So uh, they might have had their own uh, issues. So Iceland is an interesting case. So Iceland has had the highest uptake by proportion of population of, of any of the Western world countries. So it's had 40% of its population download their app. So 40% is the highest uptake. So Yeah, that's the highest uptake. So this leads us again into another aspect of the legal perspective, which is in the EU we're talking about still now, generally the app has not been mandated. So, so Mark, what are the barriers or the bars from a data protection perspective that governments would need to consider if they were to make this a mandated app? If, for example, you know, data and research shows that actually the, the coverage of this app needs to be in the realms of 70, 80% of the population to make it a useful tool in combating uh, an epidemic. Well, it's a really good question. I, and I, the short answer is, I don't exactly know, but you imagine the way you would do it is you'd pass legislation in each of the member states saying we're now making this mandatory. And that would be the primary thing. And then, then the question is, um, is it subject to challenge under either under the GDPR or under the kind of human rights legislation? Now, the GDPR is kind of fairly permissive around, uh, you know, substantial public interest, public interest, that kind of thing. So provided you're proportionate, you know, legitimate, uh, mm -hmm. defined, purpose limited, uh, you'd be allowed to do what you want. And, and actually the kind of for people interested in data protection, it, it's not that much different to the analysis that went on in SHREMS. So SHREMS is, forget the privacy shield part of it, is to what extent can intelligence agencies grab your data and do what they want with it? And the short answer is, well, privacy is a fundamental human right, but it's not uh, unlimited. Um, and it can be uh, constrained by uh, and pushed back uh, by state action, provided that state action is just legitimate, is justified, i.e. I prevention mm -hmm. of war, prevention of terrorism, here prevention of you know, high number of deaths um, and is suitably uh, constrained, defined, purpose limited. So, so the authorities are carte blanche. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, 
uh, if you're unhappy with what the government is doing, you can go to talk court and have it out in court, you've got legal recourse, so the government is subject to the rule of law. So it would be the same kind of approach here if uh, an EU government wanted to make it mandatory. So it's, it's totally uh, possible and, and um, could be enacted by the governments in the EU if you chose to do so. Uh, and, and so, Roger, I know that you've done some great work looking at the apps over in, in Asia. You know, my understanding is that a number of those that appear to have been successful in countries where they've had very low infection death rates were mandatory. It was required that citizens had to download these apps. So, Roger, you've done a lot of work on looking at apps around the world. So do you have a view on um, the percentage of uptake in countries where it's mandatory versus where it isn't mandatory? I mean, what have they been doing in Asia, for example, where they've had you know, relatively low death and infection rates? Sure. So um, certainly in European countries where it's not mandatory, the, the governments have gone to great expense and effort to encourage a population to, to download the app. Uh, most people reference a piece of work done at Oxford, actually, which reckoned that you need to reach about 56% of the general population. And given that not everybody has a phone, that means you've got to reach about 80% of smartphone users. So that actually that piece of research is referenced uh, by countries all around the world. If, you, if you're looking into this kind of thing, uh, governments always talk about that level of reaching you know, between 15 and 60%. Uh, in fact, what actually happened, because uh, we have the data now, we can see see uh, how many people downloaded it. Uh, in fact, the UK has been, uh, has been in, t- in terms of large countries, uh, it's been one of the most successful, uh, but it's, it's only reached 30% of the population. So it's currently at around 20 million downloads. Uh, Germany is very similar. It's also had 20 million downloads, but it's, it's a larger country, so uh, it's really only reached 20% of its population. Uh, the highest, the highest by percentage of population is Iceland, uh, but it's that's a much much smaller country. Uh, Spain uh, has reached uh, 20%. Oh, sorry, it's 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 currently at three and a half million downloads. They started, they came quite late to the game. Uh, they're aiming for nine million downloads, which will be 20%. Uh, Italy is at 14% of their population. Switzerland reached 20%. Uh, so, so it looks like between 20 and 30 percent is is what you get if you uh, if you just try and convince people through advertising campaigns and uh, the government uh, trying to convince the population that it's a great thing to to use. Which is really interesting because you know the impression sometimes you get in the media is that compliance in the UK is is not very good, but actually when you compare it to other European countries, it's a it's you know as good as the UK is yes I mean the UK has done better than uh, almost every other country uh, Germany's um, I suppose the closest so that uh, and the UK app uh, has has more functionality as well so the UK app also has this uh, venue check-in functionality as well and venues have been uh, quite good at printing out their check-in posters. Yeah. So there's nearly 700,000 venues now have a QR code uh, where you you can use the app to check in. Uh, I mean, that is now being, uh, it's not quite enforced through legislation, but uh, you have to, I think I, Mark, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I I believe you you have to uh, 
uh, write down the details of all visitors to your venue if you're running a hospitality business and uh, they've, you don't have to do that if people use the NHS COVID-19 app. So there's a very strong uh, influence for people to, to use the app if they want to go anywhere other than uh, their own home. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know about the hospitality, but I know that shops and other places have been, I personally have been scanning the QR codes. I quite like it when it pops up and it recognises the uh, the venue. Yeah. Yes. I, I don't know if people know, by the way, but the venue is not given the data. So the venue doesn't know that uh, any of the people who checked in, that just remains on your phone. And the phone from time to time goes to the kind of server and asks you know, have any of the venues I've checked into been determined as being risky? Uh, they're called risky venues by the NHS test and trace scheme. Uh, what's interesting about that is that the server is publicly available. So you can go and have a look at the, the venues which have been listed as risky. And uh, what's interesting about that is that given that there are nearly 700,000 venues participating in the scheme and over a million check-ins a day, uh, the number of venues that have been determined to be risky is uh, has not been more than three in any one day. So the app was released in mid-September, and since then, uh, I think no more than a dozen venues have uh, been have been listed as risky. So if you, if you get an alert on your phone saying that you've been in a, in a risky venue, you're an extremely lucky person. It's probably uh, more it's probably rarer than uh, winning, winning a lottery, actually. So yeah. <laughs> in the previous days, we would probably be quite excited about going to a risky venue. I'm not so sure <laughs> now. Yeah. And and so in Asia, then where there were number of countries made it mandatory uh, it was touched yeah. on at the end of the last episode what what was there what was their number on the uptake score uh so well what's interesting there is uh, you, you're dependent on the on the government uh, telling you how, how many downloads have been and uh because it's mandatory they don't have to you know, they don't have to tell you so it's it's almost like a badge of honor for for european countries to boast how many downloads they've had uh, I've, I've, I've searched in vain to find uh, details for, for South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, Thailand, Pakistan, and so on. Um, so so, so we, we actually don't know. But what is very interesting about those countries is um, the, 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 just the COVID numbers are, are totally different. Uh, so in the UK, we're between 50,000 and 60,000 deaths uh, since the start of the outbreak. Uh, and that's in a population of uh, 66 million. Uh, if you look at uh, Vietnam, that's a population of 95 million. They've had 35 deaths. Uh, Thailand is a population of 70 million. They've had 59 deaths. Um, Taiwan, uh, 24 million people in a very densely populated island. Uh, they've had seven deaths. So. Uh, so I've you know seen quite a few articles uh, where where people and actually uh, public figures and, um, and politicians referring to places like Taiwan and and Thailand and 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 kind of linking this very low number of deaths to the fact that they've got uh, much more intrusive app usage. Um, and I think, to be honest with you, that's an oversimplification because there are lots of other intrusive practices going on. Uh, but certainly the, the COVID statistics in those countries are, are are startling when you compare them to European countries. Yeah. And, you know, as, as speaking as a lay person here, it certainly feels like it, if it was as simple as having uh, an app that collected lots of data, even though people didn't like it and very, very toughly enforcing it. I mean, if it was that simple, then we would do it. 
or it yes. would have been done, or it will be done in the future. And Greece, Greece had very low levels at one point. Has, have they got worse since then? Uh, well, they're now on you know various travel corridors and so on, aren't they? So I, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but uh, that's it's a really good point because uh, although places like Vietnam and Taiwan have um, have extremely low numbers, I, I think Taiwan, when I was researching this, I think they actually list the individuals on their Wikipedia page who died of COVID. That's how how small the number of people are. Um, but the question is, is it all to come for them? Is it all ahead of them? So it it seems. I mean, I'm you know straying out of my expertise with technology into, like all of us these days, becoming an armchair epidemiologist. Yeah. It's it looks as if uh, uh, coronavirus is not endemic yet in those populations, whereas it, it is endemic now in 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 European countries and uh, another another Western countries. And so you're just talking about a different scenario. So maybe it's all ahead of them in places like Taiwan and Vietnam. Who knows? So it's a very, very interesting question, and, and maybe as you know, it's possible there are there's Im- immunity there because of previous uh, diseases have had. Possibly, possibly. Um, it, obviously, it, yes. I, you know, I'm straying very far out of my <laughs> knowledge of biology with that statement, but I guess it's more in hope rather than expectation. It, it does have a technology implication, by the way. So uh, if you look at Taiwan, for example, again, they've had small numbers, so seven deaths in Taiwan, but they attribute their, they do attribute their success not necessarily to an app, but to the overall technology infrastructure that they have. So they've managed to join up. Uh, I mean, they have you know, what they would call smart cities. So they, they connect yeah. you know, the telco operators with the finance uh, people with, with, the, with, the, with the traveling infrastructure. And uh, to give you an example, uh, the, uh, the, the famous case of Diamond Princess cruise ship. Yeah. Uh, so that, that visited various places in northern Taiwan. And the, uh, the Taiwan uh, smart city technology, the IEFS uh, system, uh, tracked over 600,000 contacts that they reckon have been in contact with people from Diamond Princess mm-hmm. uh, after its visits. Uh, and so the, yeah, and there've been other similar, similar events. So that's only possible uh, when, it's, when it's handled in a kind of semi or fully automated system. And, and this has been one of the criticisms leveled at, you know, in the UK that the, the, the test and trace uh, infrastructure, which is a lot of people in call centers ringing people, it just cannot cope with, with the scale once the virus has become endemic. Um, and, and even in, so, you know, when you look back at places like Taiwan, where they've managed to keep the numbers really low, even when you only have, you're there at the stage of, in their kind of epidemic where the number of deaths is in single figures, it's involved tracking over 600,000 people simultaneously from, from one event, like a cruise ship arriving in port, for example. And across multiple data points, data sets, yes. to a level that has not been contemplated here. Uh, well, exactly. I mean, if you look at another example, which is South Korea, I mean, their their system is is quite something. Uh, it, it it could be something out of uh, out of 1984. You uh, you can go to uh, a website that they helpfully publish called coronavap.site, and you can see uh, the see individual locations where they live uh, of people who've been diagnosed with with covid and that's in an app that's available to anybody on the internet 
if you come within 100 meters of one of those locations, you will receive a text telling you that uh, who, they don't, they don't give you the name, but they do give you the, 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 the gender and the age of the person uh, and, and when they got their, in, their diagnosis. Uh, and they also give you the past two weeks of location information uh, for that person, even, even though you, you, you wouldn't know this person from Adam. Uh, so that's just, just kind of handed over to you by, by the government. So I, I guess what is going through my mind is if people in this, if we knew today, given all the restrictions and the, the economic damage and the potential for future health problems, uh, and some of the, the educational damage to children. If we were offered back in April, a highly automated app solution utilizing multiple data sets to be able to control the spread of the virus right at the beginning, would, would we have agreed to do it? So uh, there's several parts to the answer that I think. Uh, uh, one of them is around do we do we trust the people operating it with with the data so how comfortable would you be about uh you know people around you saying um uh, receiving text saying a, a woman has just just tested positive click on a link for the places she visited before she was hospitalized um how comfortable would you be about that uh because that's what's going on in south korea um, there's also the question then of, uh, is, is it going to be effective? Are we going to, you know, if we're going to give up that amount of privacy, uh, are we going to get in return, uh, some strong guarantees on, on, on safety and on some of the other problems that happen in the long term, which is what bodies like the EU raise, such as mission creep. Uh, do we really trust uh, the operators of that system to, to you know, do as Matt Hancock has promised, which is to withdraw the app and delete all the data when the pandemic is over. Do we trust that? Again, that's not what's going on uh, in, in Taiwan. For example, they've, they've baked it into their city infrastructure and it's, and it's there forever and they, 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 they're claiming all sorts of other benefits from it. So, yeah. Well, on that retention point, I mean, if you look at the privacy notice for the NHS Track and Trace, uh, it talks about retention at the end. And I mean, there's two sets of data. There's data on your phone, there's data in the server, and the data on your phone gets deleted, you know, 14 days, 28 days, whatever, but disappears quite quickly. Um, the back-end server, there's no no GDPR retention period set up because in their view, it's anonymous. So they don't need to have a GDPR retention. They've got their NAPs retention periods, which are, I think they're probably required to as a um, government government. Uh, department uh, 20 years for some of it but that's all kind of anonymized data so you know that kind of addresses well that that's an answer to that whether you, you think that's yes. enough, enough a separate point and I think you know that's that's back to the point we were making earlier about population level data versus uh, versus individual data, which uh, it, it seems that population level data is of some use um, or highly anonymized data at a population scale is of some use. And we know that there are other apps out there which people don't think of uh, at the same time as, uh, as, as, as track and tracing apps, uh, but things like symptom trackers uh, have become very popular and they're operated by private companies and they're giving us a lot of data. And I think, Karen, you've got some... Yeah, the Zoe COVID survey, it, it came out very early on, the beginning of this epidemic, that went through a couple of my WhatsApp groups, actually. 
Um, and I did some research on the company behind it. Now they've got strong links to one of the top universities and um, bioscience companies. So, you know, they have a they they have a a dual interest in collecting these really rich data sets. One, obviously, in the current pandemic, and secondly, you know that kind of health information could be used, you know, in, for a medical science. Um, and if over five hundred over five million people downloaded and, and I guess still use that app, and that's completely voluntary. And there was, you know, it just went round as far as I could tell through word of mouth. Uh, question, you know, becomes is where, where is the governance that's that's over the top of that? But yes, given that data freely, um, you know, and and so so Mark, I would say, you know, question to you is, you know, here we are discussing, you know, the legality of, of the privacy issues around giving giving away data to government authorities. Yet, you know, we're locked in our homes and we've lost uh, other basic human rights that we that we did <laughs> that we had before March, you know, the right to go and earn a living in some instances and socialise and visit family and friends and stuff. So it feels a little bit, you know, if I was going to be the man in the street and just say, well, you know, we might have protected our data privacy, but actually we've lost a whole load of other freedoms anyway. Well, yeah, but um what do you do if you're in the government in the government you're trying to you know get rid of or or slow down covid on the one, on one hand you're not trying not to destroy the economy uh no one knows exactly what is effective in in slowing down covid they're actually other than isolation right we know that if you isolate everybody no one meets in each other since most of the spread is person to person there will be less spread okay how best to do that, how best to track that, how best to make it happen, no one's really quite sure, and everyone's fumbling in the dark. Mm. Uh, at the same time, it's, you know, it's damaging the economy, clearly. Um, so, you know, and this is not a GDPR point, so, you know, I, I just said at that point, some kind of restrictions are are required uh, to protect, protect, you know, some people, it's not it's not a solitary choice right it's not in the end that's the problem it's not yeah i'm okay i'll take the risk you don't take the risk for yourself you take the risk for about 50 other people you might bump into which is kind of kind of delegitimizes your, your risk taking i mean there's some other kind of interesting aspects to it which is you know what happens when there are faults in the system so you know the uk has had some reasonably well publicized problems Actually, not so much with the app, although there were some problems with the app in that it, it, it won't work on, on older hardware because the hardware just doesn't have the, the necessary chipsets to give you the Bluetooth functionality. Uh, but there have been problems with the systems being used in the wider test and trace organization. So there was a you know very public uh, problem where there was somewhere in the whole system, there was a spreadsheet that was being used to transfer data around. Uh, and 16,000 uh, names just dropped off the end of that spreadsheet. So those people weren't notified about their, uh, the, the exposures that, that they've had. And there's been, uh, there's been another one recently, again, not with the app, but with uh, systems that support the, the people in the call centers for, for contact tracing, uh, where the, the system was not issuing the correct dates for the start and end of your isolation period. So it turns out that about 7,000 people were uh, were told to isolate for too long and by the time the the bug had been discovered and the, the people had, uh, that it affected had been been told uh, those people had been uh, been 
uh, been told to isolate in their homes for for longer than was there was necessary you know under the under the current legislation so uh you know technical issues in these systems have have big consequences uh, and you know i i wonder whether there's any remedy in law or protections in law for people who you know are are you protected if if the government uh you know uses these systems and you're and 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 you suffer because of it Interesting question. So you probably uh, short answers. I don't really know. Could you bring, you know, could you bring a case of negligence or something? You know, you, you can go right. around. Right. I think your chances of succeeding at something like this will be pretty slim. Um, not only because there'll be some kind of crown prerogative at play, but who, you know, I mean, what what I think is quite for me quite interesting is the way that the NHS uh, Track and Trace app has been kind of deployed in the UK. I don't mean deployed uh, an operational logistic way, but in a kind of legal way, how they, you know, how they, how they built it, you know, uh, what lawful basis they put it under, what they put in their, in their, in their uh, privacy notice, you know, all that kind of stuff. They've obviously gone to a lot of trouble to try and get it right. Uh, they had discussed, a lot of discussions with the ICO, interaction between them and the ICO, um, it's all you know. A lot of it's available there. You know, a huge DPIA of fifty thousand words is available there. That the um, the bases are available there. I mean, for those interested, it's you know you can go take a look at it. And if if if, if Karen and Roger are interested, I'll give you three minutes worth on on it now. Yeah, I would love to. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so the so you got a standard privacy notice as you might expect and. You kind of think, well, if I was going to run a, a track and trace, uh, I would, you know, what would I do? What lawful basis would I do it? Would I do it consent? It seems to be the obvious one to do it, or I find something else. And actually, they haven't done it under consent. They've done it under um, uh, Article 61E. Processing is necessary for the performance of a task carried out in a public interest. Okay. And the primary advantage of that, I suspect, apart from the fact sounds a bit more legitimate, um, is you don't need to gather consent in the same way. You don't need specific, unambiguous uh, mm-hmm. consent, you know, per uh, thing that you, per use that you're going to make of the data. So that's the primary one. Then they've gone under, you know, they've gone on, then they've gone, uh, so that's a primary basis. And then they've got this special category basis, which is kind of 92G, H and I. Uh, and for those, you know, it's all about substantial public interest. Who knows what the difference between public interest and substantial public interest is? I have, I have no idea. Um, it's not in there anywhere. Um, then that was G. Then H is medical diagnosis, provision of health and social care, management of health and social care. And then I is another reason of public interest areas of public health. So there's loads of stuff there. Yeah. Um, and then there's a couple of references out to the DPA, um, Management Healthcare Systems, Public Health Purposes. So there's, there's a couple of interesting points there. One is that you would not initially assume that proximity data is health data, right? So this is kind of the, the, the nature of the multifaceted nature of, of personal data. If I was running an app to see how close people stood t- together, because I'm interested in, I know, I, in that, and I want to sell, I know, breath freshener. Um, I, you know, that would not be special category data for those purposes. 
-hmm. exactly the same data if I'm using it to work out how people like to get infected, become self-data. The data hasn't changed. It's just the purpose you're using data defines what the data is about. Um, yeah. And another interesting thing is they've had to rely on, on the PECA, uh, uh, on the, the private the privacy electronic communications directive uh, regulation was a directive enacted as a regulation. Um, and if you remember, it's got like cookie stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We remember it well. <laughs> yeah. Right. So basically the cookie and it's all the cookie says, um, a person shall not gain access to information stored in the terminal of a subscriber uh, un unless, so data stored in the terminal of a subscriber, i.e. your phone, uh, and basically it's pulling off data and, and matching it with other people's phones, um, unless you've got explicit consent or consent or such storage or access is strictly necessary for the provision of an information society service requested by the subscriber mm -hmm. user. So information society services, EU speak for online service. So clearly to make this at work, you need to have access to your 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 phone and other people's phones. So that comes within that. That, that tick there, then you've got the tick for the lawful bases. And you're kind of off and running. And the advantage of all the advantage and disadvantage, or one advantage from the consumer's point of view of the using the uh, GDPR Article 61E, which is uh, public interest, is then there's further bits in the GDPR that basically says um, the, the, the regulation or the law shall meet an objective of public interest and be proportionate to the legitimate aim pursued just a bit back to the point we're talking about it's not unconstrained it's going to be proportionate to what they're trying to do right okay so so those safeguards or those reasons are, are built in well they're built they're built into the they're there in the privacy notice these are the lawful bases there's effectively about four five six lawful bases uh, which is another interesting point for privacy practitioners where it's often, and they might be incorrectly said, said you can only have one lawful basis per purpose, right? And here they've got the same purpose, about six of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, well, the bases are, are yeah. definitely being covered. Yeah. Um, but when, you know, when it has been laid out in that way with strong public health benefits you you know you wonder why it wasn't made mandatory well i think you know they didn't make it mandatory because uh they thought the carrot was better than it was be more effective than the stick right i mean it's a tactical question apart from the moral question um you know are you more likely to get higher penetration uh as a voluntary thing um and you know and or does the population respect the government enough to well could the government to make it mandatory and if it was made mandatory how much policing would be required to actually enforce it you know and make all those things just practical things which would make it pretty difficult but yes the you know what the mandatory national lockdown we're in is you know another is is a stick approach in that analogy yeah but it's kind of easier because the only way you're going to find out uh and, and actually the mandatory is not like it's heavily policed i know that 
uh, talking uh, to friends who back from Spain recently, and if you left your village, uh, you'd be stopped on the road by the police. And if you said what, and they said why you leave the village, they say what, and you say I'm going to get my hair cut in the next town. And they say that's not good enough. There's a hairdresser in the village. You go back to the village. Right. So you know the lockdown's not being enforced heavily in that way. It's more a moral principle with an idea of some threats in the background. Mm. I, I also wonder whether. Um... The, the, the getting the data and the getting the utility out of it that they were originally hoping for. I mean, there was great store laid in all these apps uh, back in back in March and April, and uh, not just in the UK but around the world. You know, chancellors and prime ministers saying like this is the route out of lockdown. Uh, I mean, that was certainly the that was certainly the promise made in Australia and uh, in Germany. There was a similar message and. Uh, you know, it was, it, it was a standard pattern that you'd have, uh, you know, the, the country's leader announcing the launch of the app. Uh, it's great fanfare, uh, tr trying to get trying to get the numbers up. But I, I really wonder whether and, and a huge amounts of money spent on, on this on advertising campaigns. And I really wonder whether they got the utility out of it. They were hoping um, just to go back to Iceland, as an example, uh, the one of the people involved in running that scheme there. So uh, there's a this chap called Gesta Palmerson who's uh, running the, the technology part of the test and trace scheme there. And Iceland's had the you know the highest population uptake, forty percent. And and a quote from him is that, that the technology is more or less, I wouldn't say useless, but uh, it, with the integration of of all the other things, uh, it's proven uh, it, it, it's not a game changer. Uh, yeah, and he says we've been working in a collaborative model with citizens. He says there's law, we can do fines, but basically, uh, we, you know, we we can't just trust the technology. So uh, even even when you've you've managed to get a high uptake in your population, it, it's it's not turning out to be as effective as as everyone was hoping originally. So, well, maybe 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 it would be more effective if there was more, if you know, category uh, more information gathered. So this is yeah. the kind of you know. You can look at it from a negative way, a positive way. This is uh, the negative way, the thin end of the wedge. And, you know, here comes Big Brother. Or the positive way, this is 1.0 and 2.0 would be better. So maybe more location data. Maybe some some smartphones could take your temperature and feed up, you know, automatically. Yeah. Um, I mean, quite possibly, uh, I mean, just kind of... You know, just thinking outside the box a little bit now. So maybe you know, maybe an actually uh, custom-made device. So this is what they did in Singapore. So Singapore failed uh, with its app because low-paid workers didn't have the phones, um, and all the transmission was happening amongst low-paid workers. So the forty thousand immigrant workers living in dormitories. It didn't have smartphones and therefore couldn't use an app. So what what the Singaporean government did was it actually manufactured. Uh, a device that you could just wear on your lapel. It just clipped on to your lapel, and it just had just the just the hardware in there that uh, was necessary that they needed. And so they'd gone for that approach, and they just they just give it out. Yeah. Uh, so I mean that would be another approach. So if you had something which maybe had, you know, a thermometer in it, and maybe some you know, whatever you thought was necessary to get the get the right data, I mean, that's another that's a completely different approach. Uh, I mean also I mean as, as Karen was saying earlier the the citizen science approach where you know people are encouraged just to volunteer their data uh, that, that seems to have yielded a lot more data than the government dared to dare to collect uh, because of privacy concerns so so I think if you were a company developing this as a product I, I think it probably still wouldn't have come out of the, the research labs yet you'd still be iterating through you know version 2 version 3 version 4 
uh, unfortunately, because uh, because all of this has been done um, necessarily in a rush, starting from nothing, you have to do this iteration in, in the public eye, you know, while the while the pandemic is still ongoing, and so you, you just don't have the time to kind of go through all these kind of product pivots uh, to try and find the, the the most effective approach. Yeah, it's it's totally correct, and and also, you know. A point we sort of ended on in the previous episode was around well how do we have how do we have the debate to decide how intrusive an app should be based on the level of risk of, of a particular virus so you know you could imagine a scenario where if another virus came in and it was much more deadly than coronavirus that actually if there was some mechanism for saying right everybody you know this is the way it's going to be for the next year, it's going to be this app, it's going to be mandatory and it's going to be collecting all this data because, you know, this is a different situation and we've learned from, from the past uh, situation. Yeah. But how could we even get to that point of being able to calibrate a response? Um, I mean, I think it's difficult. I mean, just to frame it in a slightly different way, just, just to put some perspective on it. If you look at death, causes of death in the UK in September, so COVID-19 was uh, 19th on the list uh, with 690 deaths uh, in, in September. Um, road accidents uh, were 130 deaths. So it's uh, you're not an order of magnitude away from road accidents. Now, your phone, I don't know if you know this, but your phone, uh, if you have an Apple phone, certainly uh, the co- core motion um feature on there has a good guess at what activity you're up to so it it can tell whether you're walking stationary seated going upstairs but it can also tell whether you're in a motor vehicle or not so so one you know you could it it, it, would be pretty straightforward for apple to uh to alert you when when it said hey i think you're driving a car uh do you know that that's a you know a risky uh risky activity um, now, how, how would people react to that? I mean, you, you get some very strange looks if your phone tried to, you know, try to warn you that you're driving every time you got in your car. But um, so back in September, the, the numbers of, of deaths were, you know, in the same kind of ballpark as, as COVID deaths. And yet, uh, you know, we were, we were jumping through all these hoops of privacy hoops um, and technological issues and political problems uh, with, with the COVID app. And, and yet, you know, the, your phone can also tell you that you're in a car which has a similar level of risk. There is some, I don't know if any of you, either of you have heard, there is some really good news on the horizon on from the testing point. Um, now, my daughter brought this to my attention, actually. She's, she's doing chemistry GCSE. And um, it will also, it's quite controversial. So, uh, Mark, I don't know if you have a view on this. but um, So this involves a lady called Jennifer Dudna. She's an American biochemist. She was awarded the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry together with uh, a chap called Emmanuel Charpentier. And they're both known for their pioneering work in CRISPR gene editing. Now, CRISPR is a technology that can be used to edit genes. And here we go. This is my summary of my understanding of it. Um, It's a way of finding a specific bit of DNA inside a cell which they can then alter that piece of DNA or turn the genes on or off without altering their sequence. So they've developed this highly accurate COVID test using this technology. It takes five minutes 
and importantly, it doesn't require expensive lab equipment, so it can be used in many different settings. You know, it's come out in the in the last couple of months. They're obviously working quite hard on it, but again, we might end up with the same dilemma. Um, here is a incredibly efficient test that can be done really quickly, that can be rolled out quickly, that could you know, in, in the case of a, a credibly uh, dangerous epidemic could stop, really help stop it. However, it's going to have to <laughs> collect and process genetic data. Um, so it, it feels... It, it, but it comes back, I mean, I think the point, but it comes back to how much you trust the state and the organ, you know, the organisations, right? So if you look at the UK, so on the whole, we trust our governments, on the whole, we trust the ICO. Um, and the ICO has actually pulled in the police force, right? Pulled them up. Do you remember on that the Welsh uh, oh, yeah. facial recognition? So the ICO will intervene. And I know that in Australia, the police tried to get hold of some uh, track and trace data and they refused permission to do that. And, you know, provided that stuff is robust enough, then, mm. and particularly if it, 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 yeah, well, you can't have genome work. So there is, and there are other advantages, presumably, right? If you map everybody's genome, I mean, that may, you know, we know that NHS costs, again, here's an arm, armchair medical strategist, right? Yes. I, I know that, medically, well, we all know that NHS costs are higher and higher, aging population, so on. How do you make uh, medicine, how do you increase the health of everybody without increasing the cost of doing so. Maybe if we had universal genome mapping, um, that would be a good way of going there. And if even if you made it voluntary and people said, well, actually, you know, you'll probably end up living five years longer because you'll, you know, the, you'll catch things earlier, a lot of people would sign up for it. Yes, I mean, the, you know. Now, aren't they? The interesting conversations. The, uh, I mean, we're getting into some issues which were were running you know, before the, the COVID outbreak, and the, so the NHS, I mean, because it is a you know a, a unified system, well, at, at, at some level anyway, um, it does have access to these uh, almost unique data sets, you know, these whole population data sets which other health systems don't have access to, and uh, you know, there were there were debates about you know what use should the NHS put these population data sets to, and then you get into the question of okay who's getting access to it so is big pharma getting access to it are they making the right use of it who's making money out of it uh, who's getting the benefits so there are the health benefits but obviously there are the uh, the financial benefits as well so that's that's a you know another kind of very complex area um and it's you know it's it's only a, the data sets are only going to get more and more with you know with the use of apps uh, like this I mean, there's another just kind of on the kind of population level data that back to the individual uh, level stuff. I'm also wondering uh, to what extent can uh, can the law be enforced around things which happen on your phone? So so if if the app tells you to isolate and if there are penalties and legal sanctions around isolation, can that be tied back to something that just happened on your phone? Um, I mean, I know there are issues around, uh, so for example, you currently if you're on a low income and, and somebody from Test and Trace calls you, so if, a, if a, a real person calls you and tells you to isolate and you're on a low income, you can claim £500 from your local authority to support you in your isolation. 
but you can't claim it uh, if you've just been alerted by the phone. So uh, what are there issues around, you know, to what extent are, are sanctions and, uh, and the law enforceable when, when it's just, just down to an app on your phone? Well, good question. I don't see why the sanctions wouldn't be enforceable. I mean, there's a more more GDPR-ish point around automated decision-making. So GDPR as a, as a piece of uh, legislation is not that keen on automated decision-making, doesn't like it, think it can disenfranchise the population, that kind of stuff. Um, and actually it's dealt with in their NHS track and trace. And they say, well, actually, we don't think it applies. Uh, oh, actually, interesting, the the Commission and the, ED, the European Data Protection Board said no. You shouldn't be. There should be no automatic uh, decision making. Everyone should be notified by a human being if they're in, if they've got if they're likely to have got infection. Which clearly, in my in my view, is nonsense. Who's you know that just increases cost, time, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so the NHS Track and Trade says uh, we've reviewed it. We don't think it applies. But anyway, we're going to comply. Um, and I think I think the way they comply is, is they tell you that you're you know you may have been infected you come into contact with someone's been infected um, if you want to talk to someone here's a number rather than actually calling right calling you yeah, there's the intervention yeah exactly so um, I think I think all this kind of stuff is much more to do with the practicality it's a bit like um, uh, getting people monitoring uh, seat belts right. Um, occasionally you catch people who are not wearing the seatbelts, but it's quite hard to do if you're a police person you don't particularly like, well, it's easy to do now because everyone accepts it. Equally, quite hard to catch people when they're on their phones uh, in the cars. Now, as, yeah. a, as a practical matter, it's hard to catch them, but it's easier to do now because everyone understands the logic behind it. Yeah, that's totally correct. Well, crikey, what a, what a podcast we've had. <laughs> Lots of great uh, points being raised and discussed. And um, I think, you know, we've covered a lot of, of, of areas. Um, from my perspective, I think um, what I find fascinating is that we are at a point where privacy is, it's a big deal in our lives. And it's very pertinent in the teeth of, a pandemic because it impacts and it needs to be considered seriously alongside our policy actions and, and things that people do. Yes, I'm sure that's right. And uh, it, it's not an issue that's going away. And um, I, I, I don't think we've got the answer yet. So I, you know, I think this is going to go through many more iterations before we get to something where, you know, it's generally, generally accepted and everybody's comfortable with it and understands how it all works. I, I think we're still still right at the start of that process of, of working out how best to handle it uh, without having to reinvent our, our culture. I agree. Mark, any comment no no i agree with that i think it's a, it's a trade-off isn't it what we thought were important freedoms what you realize important is a relative term and you know it's it's not just about your safety but safety of your family safety of your neighbors and so on so you have to be a certain amount at least where i take it a certain amount of um, community thinking is is required, and although you know the UK or well, the West compared to the East has got a much stronger individualist tradition, uh, it may be that in increasing globalization, you know, climate change to take uh, an example uh, shows that actually that that 
that the world has become too small for that to be sustainable the way it was back in the medieval ages. Well, it's, it's um, th those are fights that the younger generation will be um, are taking on. And, and well, I count myself in that group. <laughs> yeah, well, sorry, all of us are finding ourselves in that group, of course. <laughs> well, in summary, let this younger generation on, on our show today talk, uh, summarise what we've talked about uh, in our show. We talked about some of the barriers from data protection regulations in the EU around the quantity and quality of the data that apps can collect and whether this has actually reduced the effectiveness of the track and trace apps. Uh, we've heard that more successful apps in Asia, for example, collected more data and combined this with other data sets to better target infections quickly. These countries have undeniably had a less severe impact from coronavirus. So what price for data privacy? You know, when many basic freedoms have been taken from us and our way of life severely impacted over the course of 2020, what if we had taken a different approach? Uh, and used more data and made the apps mandatory, could the outcomes have been different? What if 80% app usage is realistically needed to be effective? If so, then why did we not do this? And what are we to learn from other countries? A, a bugbear of mine is when I hear people, including politicians, quoting the success in Asia without mentioning the quantity of data collected or, or even that the app is mandatory. Um, I think that's you know, that's just not fair. They're, they're hiding some of the truths of this. So we must continue this conversation, I think, all of us, um, together with the younger generation, and find a framework for discussing the greater use of data in a mandatory way to support better pandemic and health outcomes. I personally truly believe there are solutions out there without restricting the amount of data we have to use. We just need to organise ourselves better to discuss them. And unfortunately, the damage to the UK economy is real and the UK's national debt, for example, I, I looked the other day, is now the highest since the Second World War. So this is not projection based on academic modelling. It's an actual amount that has to be paid back by us, our children and potentially their children as well. So we cannot simply afford continual damaging lockdowns when the next virus comes along, which sadly it must. So let's continue the conversation. Uh, however, unfortunately, we are at the end of the, this episode of GDPR now. Um, for listeners of any questions, please e email me or any issues. Or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, please let me know. Um, so to our listeners, thanks again for listening. But to Mark and to Roger, a huge thank you for taking the time and giving us a brilliant conversation at a very timely moment uh, in, in our lives. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. So that's it for me, Karen Heaton. I hope you'll join us again soon. Take care, stay safe.